Whiskers podcast for another week. I'm Wes Cusworth, joined by Mark Browning and Anthony Petkovic. Firstly, Mark, welcome to you. The Cats got the job done against the Blues. Uh, good evening, Wes. Good evening, everyone. Yes, they did. Uh, I was there on level two and they were just below the snow line um, when the mists <laughs> came down. Look, the Cats got the job done. I probably was slightly more entertaining there than on the TV because you could see what was sort of the whole ground, but it was a sort of a slip fest, wasn't it? They're just slipping and sliding everywhere. They never looked like they were going to lose the Cats. But Carlton's mid, I think there is some progress at Carlton. Their midfield really competed well. Geelong's back line, um, Tom Stewart, Lockie Henderson, they just wouldn't let them through often enough and they butchered their own chances, Carlton, didn't they? Who is the goal-kicking coach, uh, Anthony Peck? Can we get the Blues? Oh, oh, Peter Johnson, I think, <laughs> could be the goal-kicking coach down there. They had some problems, but um, they're, they're often shooting from wide or under pressure. Not too many of them were, were straightforward opportunities. And I think, as Mark said, Geelong always looked like they were going to win, but never were able to create a bit of distance between their opponents. That's been a bit of a trend at the MCG for Geelong, apart from the glorious performance against Richmond earlier in the season. They have struggled to score at the MCG. They've had an awful lot of the football. They had 56 forward 50 entries, um, a ton of footy, um, and only could come up with 10 goals. And that's a worry for come finals time because you would you would want to convert better than that. And, and our performances there at the G against uh, Melbourne, uh, Collingwood, and now again against Carlton have been pretty stodgy, disappointing performances that have been won out of the back line. Um, and Geelong would have to play a lot better than that to uh, threaten at the MCG against good sides, I fear. Well, if you believe social media, the most impressive thing about the entire game was uh, was Zach Dewey's moustache. <laughs> a Moroccan, a Moroccan brown or something, was it? Moroccan, or? Moroccan sunset, I think. A Moroccan sunset. The, uh, description he gave it. Uh, he's got a large personality, uh, Zach Dewey, and... Um, He's got a lot of uh, supporters who love him out there. And, and uh, along with Tom Stewart, he's probably the two uh, icon players at the moment in terms of uh, style. I thought Gary Rowan's mark was not too shabby. Yes. That, that was certainly something worth seeing. And I sat next to my Carlton supporter mate who I said, come on, this is a, this is a great mark that's been taken. You know, you should appreciate it as a football fan. And he said, it, all he could say was, it shouldn't have had that opportunity because the deliberate out of bounds free kick immediately before wasn't the correct decision. Uh, he did, I did bring him around later and he, he did admit that it was a great mark. And up there, I, the, the story is, it's up there with all the other contenders for mark of the year. I don't know if you guys think that. Oh, oh definitely. Would have been better if he had gone back and kicked the goal, but you can't have everything in football. Um, but uh, just a word on Carlton. A lot of people think that they've underachieved this year. I, I think they're about exactly where they are. I would have expected at the start of the year Carlton to win about eight games, and that's what they're sort of tracking to do. There's still too many players there who are... Their bottom six or seven are clearly not going to be part of their next premiership team. Um, their top end is good. Uh, their, their bookends, in terms of Weedering at one end and Mackay at the other, is excellent. They've got to get Kerno fit and back in the team. That's easier said than done. But we'll know when Carlton are a more formidable force. When Carlton are a formidable force, Eddie Betts won't be there. Levi Casbolt won't be there. Jack Martin won't be there. The most overrated 
overpaid football in the competition, in the history of the game, possibly. Um, Carlton are exactly where they ought to be. They're, they'll go, they'll win eight games and they'll keep pressing, but they've got to get more depth in their club. Uh, Sam Walsh is a gun in the midfield. Too. Oh, yes. Fine player. And another thing I said to my Carlton friend Craig was that uh, if I was Alistair Clarkson and I was looking for another club to coach and I had to choose between Collingwood and Carlton, I wouldn't think twice about it. I would hunt straight in on Carlton. I think there's something to work with there. Agreed. Despite their amazing win at the weekend, uh, Collingwood, I think, need to rejig their list a long, a lot. Yeah. Well, uh, Collingwood, Collingwood, Collingwood's better players are in the older age bracket. I don't think they're going to get any better. Uh, and some of their better players lack a bit of discipline as well. Um, talking about Dugowie in particular. Um, yeah, Carlton would be the choice for me, uh, provided there was unity on at the board level, which I'm not sure there ever quite is at Carlton. And they all need to get on the same page. Talk, they talk their chances up at the start of the year as if they were finals aspirants. They never were, never going to be. But some people at the club got wildly carried away. And when you create that huge expectation and you don't meet it, you create a crisis. And that's what they've done for themselves. Tipster's nightmare last weekend, boys. Uh, yes, it was hard picking a winner in the from Saturday onwards. Uh, certainly was, and some of those results you just could not expect. Did not see coming. Did not see Richmond's capitulation. Uh, did not see West Coast's capitulation. North Melbourne are the form team of the competition. Um, always gave the Swans a chance, but I thought the Bulldogs would be too good. And of course, Gold Coast um, were just magnificent against a floundering GWS. I think uh, last week I thought maybe we're going to see a Fitzroy Footscray grand final. Uh, that's done a bit of a flip because they've both had bad losses last weekend. And I don't know. I really don't know who to think. Melbourne, I guess, have gone back to being a, a grand final favourite to play in the grand final at least. And maybe even Geelong are sneaking in there. But it's so wide open. Even the positions in the top eight and probably the last who is going to be in the bottom half of the top eight. Really, it's just... A, a melting pot. It's changing from week to week. Um, Sydney have thrown a spanner in the works. They're better than everyone probably thought they were. Port Adelaide can't beat a top team, even on their home ground, uh, which is a worry. They've lost on their home ground to Geelong, Melbourne and the Bulldogs. So we, I think we can say that they're more a fifth to eighth team rather than a first to fourth. Um, but no, the, the premiership race is wide open simply because no one is having that uh, sustained, there's no super team, put it this way. Which is very, very good for the casual observer. Of course, we're not casual observers, but we uh, we are of 17 teams. If the Cats can't win it, we probably don't mind terribly much who wins it. Well, the reason we're talking about that Carlton contest is because we are actually recording this week's podcast before the Geelong Fremantle game. So when in the latter stages of our program, we talk about that Fremantle game upcoming, we'll probably have egg on our faces and all of our West Coast supporter friends will take great delight in rubbing it into the Cats Whiskers crew because we may well have anticipated a different result to that which transpires on Thursday night. But let's move towards this week's guest. It's actually a man who is celebrating his birthday, his 61st birthday. It's a gentleman that played 28 games for the Cats, 95 games for Sydney, 123 games in all at the top level 
It's David Bolton. Welcome back to the Cat's Whiskers program with Wes Cusworth, Anthony Petkovic and Mark Browning. Our guest for this particular week's episode is David Bolton, a man who played some 28 games for the Cats between 84 and 85 and then went on to Sydney between 86 and 91. He played a further 95 games at the highest level. David, welcome to the Cat's Whiskers and firstly, happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. The big 6-1. I guess say that as we reflect on a a fabulous footy career, I mean, at both uh, the elite level and also at grassroots level, uh, both before and also after your your time with Geelong and the Sydney Swans, there's there's lots of really fun memories to reflect on as you look back on it now. Yeah, it was a long, long career. I extended it a fair bit by uh, still playing after I finished it. Sydney by uh, coaching a couple of sides and yeah, still running around until I think I was 44. So it's a lot of footy, yeah, a lot of stories over that journey. David, tell us about your earliest uh, childhood football memories. Uh, who did you follow and uh, where was your junior career? Uh, where did that start? Uh, I was always uh, keen on Geelong and two of my teachers at Oberon Primary School were ex-Geelong people, one being Fred Ledoux, being uh, Tom Hawkins' grandfather. He, um, he taught me in grade four, uh, and Bill Dalziel was another teacher I had. He was also involved down at Geelong, uh, also as a player and a um, recruiter for them as they went, uh, as he retired and uh, did a lot in that field after. I played a lot of my junior football just in uh, local YMCA down at the uh, the rec down at uh, South Bowen Cricket uh, Ovals down there, and uh, then went on to play out at Grover in under 16s and 17s out there. David, you you went to Grovedale. I actually played with your brother Jeff at Belmont. Why did you select Grovedale ahead of? the mighty Belmont Football Club at McDonald Reserve, as they were back in the GDFL days? I think it was just that um, I had a couple of guys that I knocked around with at the time. They uh, they went out to play at Grovedale and they said, you'd like to go out there? So I just jumped on board and ended up out there. You also worked with my, a little bit later than playing footy at Grovedale, you worked with my father-in-law, Fred Morris, at Kidinia oh. Park. That was, that was uh, just at the time when you were... Becoming a, a AFL VFL player, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I'd, I'd come back from uh, South Australia and uh, worked down on the grounds down at Cadinia Park with Fred. And uh, oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't realise that. And um, yeah, we had some fun times down there. It was um, a little bit different uh, these days where you've got to get around on tractors and that, either with hats and shirts and fluoro tops. It used to be just the footy shorts and nothing, not much else in the summer down there. They work on the tan. It doesn't happen now. So, David, tell us about that journey down to Kidinia Park where you first played for the Cats as an under-19. Under-19. Well, I just had been through different uh, sort of levels of rep footy from under-16s, 17s, and then got a call up. It was invited down there to try out for the under-19s. And that was probably mid-season, I would have thought, in my, I would have been uh, considered like the first year of under-19. So I still had one more year to go uh, 
uh, after the first half of the season, I, I went down there. So I managed to hang in there and play uh, one and a half years down there. And then from there, we um, I couldn't, I was trying for the list down at Geelong and I couldn't quite make the grade at that stage. So I made this, what, what is called the supplementary list and then started to play a few reserves games, uh, but couldn't really crack it for much more than that. So the ex-coach Rod Olsen had um, been, I think, sacked by Geelong and then he headed across to um, South Australia to coach Woodville and then he sent someone to come across and have a look at me play at local level at the seniors at Grovedale and got signed up that weekend when they came across to have a look and I just packed up and went over there and was over there for three years. But David, your, your debut with Geelong, round one, 1984, coincided with the debuts of Geelong, some big names as they turned out to be. Uh, Mark mm. Jacko Jackson made his debut that day. So did mm. the great Greg Williams and yep. the even greater Gary Ablett Senior. What a day. Yeah, it was a big day and it was a big win. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting to see uh, both Greg and Gary run around, not so much Jacko because he'd been already out there and displayed what he could do with his goal kicking and whatever else he was up to. But the other two were really, um, even though Gary, I think, had played a handful of games down at uh, Hawthorne, it was really both their, yeah, their first games uh, with Geelong. But, uh, yeah, you could see straight up how good a players they were going to be. And who were, some of the, who were some of the really good players that you played alongside in those two years at Geelong? Uh, Mick Turner was, was there, uh, Ray Card, Yatesy was another one. I'd sort of come through under-19s with him, but he was already established when I'd come back from South Australia to have a go. Um, who else do we have? John Mossop. I don't know whether... No, he wasn't. I was thinking Peter Featherby, but he'd already left at that time. Gary Malarkey was still there. So there was a lot of... Uh, I would have thought it was probably a more senior team than a younger side at that stage. David, um, I, think, I think we must ask you a couple of questions about Jacko because not only was he a, a, a good, solid full forward, a good kick for goal, but he was a unique character. What sort of a... How would, how would the rest of the guys deal with a character like that at training? in the rooms, was he a quiet guy or, or was the persona that we saw on the ground the same persona off the field? No, look, as, as much as he carried on on the field, with his training, he was very um, diligent with that. He'd, you know, when I used to work down on the ground, he would be there like from about two o'clock until four o'clock. Most, most days, I'd say, practising both ends of the ground, kicking for goal from all different angles, but you wouldn't find him trying to kick out, kick over his distance that he was his limit, which was about a good 40 metres as, as a solid kick and wouldn't miss. But he tried into the wind. He'd take a notebook and make all notes and all sorts of things about which way the wind was blowing. He'd record his scores. So he was, he was fairly serious about his training and his goal kicking. It wasn't the person you would quite see out on the ground sometimes. He was uh, smart enough to have all that down pat in his area of play. And of course, Anthony made reference to the uh, introduction of uh, yourself and also Diesel Williams at Geelong. And, and yep. you went on to have a great friendship with Diesel and no doubt still do. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. that was a, well, 
a formidable pact that you formed way back then. Yeah, it just it just sort of happened that uh, I came back to Geelong as a, a bit of an on baller, but it didn't quite work out that way. And at that stage, we'll um, was David uh, Whedon's suggestion that I, I have a go on the the wing, and we played a practice match down at Geelong one night about four games in, and said, you know, I think you could play wing, and uh, yeah, I did okay that night. So that's where I remained for the rest of the time. And being so close with Greg down at Geelong, we painted the uh, seats down there in those days when we both went down there we didn't have a job neither of us so we were um, painting the the seats with their numbers on it and uh, before the first league game I ended up uh, being down there until about eight o'clock with uh, Rob Hawkins um, Tom's uncle and we were uh, installing seats there for the Pivotonians up until about eight o'clock in the dark with a shifter spanner and you know, I'm sure some of those seats back then weren't even uh, fitted off that day. The guys that were sitting there would have been w- wobbling in their suits, but just had to get home. You know, had an aching back, and I'm thinking, I've got to play here tomorrow. I might as well stay here the night. But yeah, things have changed a bit since then, haven't they? Certainly have. Yeah, David, um, your first coach at Geelong was uh, Tom Hafey when you made your senior debut, and you must yeah. have enjoyed a good relationship with Tom because you then. Um, Followed him to Sydney at the end of 1985. Tell us about yeah. Tom. Yeah, Tom had probably, I think he would have had about eight guys from the Geelong list that he could have chose from to approach to go up to um, Sydney. And uh, I dare say, you know, Greg being one of those targets, uh, he probably thought it was a little bit easier to have someone that could work with him closely, which I'd already established a bit of a pattern there with Greg. So that was probably easy enough for him. He also had um, Bernard Tui that he picked as well. And the other guy was Andrew Buse. Uh, Andrew was the one that knocked back the offer but moved on a few a few years later. But uh, Tom was a really good coach at getting everyone together first. Um, as a, I don't know, it, it, he just seemed to have the happy knack of being able to go into a side and bring them from... Um, uh, us against them mentality and it was no better than the Swans to do that because every week we had at least one player from one club where they'd uh, been recruited from where we all had to get in and support whether it be Merv Nagel or Jim Edmund or something he'd always build it up against you know we've got to do it for Jim or we've got to do it to Merv help him out he filled a real um, network of um, yeah good friendship and support for each other that way uh, it did wane towards the end, and that's one thing probably Tom didn't get a good handle on at any club that he, he went on. He, he did lose uh, after the initial impact. Uh, uh, what could we say? His message wasn't lost, but I, I, I think that uh, outside of that, he wasn't a, ma- a magnificent tactician or anything like that. Um, so it, it probably fell on deaf ears as we got going along. Uh, Tom's uh, training regime was um, probably well known to a lot of people at at our age. Uh, it was very ruthless, and uh, the better you trained, the longer he would like it to go. So, um, you know, so it wasn't in your best interest to uh, train particularly well then. Yeah, no, it, it's sort of um, yeah. We we'd get to the point at a lot of training sessions. You know, we'd all get around. So, is it worthwhile stuffing it up? So we can get off the track because the better it went, 
was, Tom was like a spectator in the middle. He used to just love watching it go around. A lot of it was circle work, but he, he just, he loved it. You know, he loved to see the, the guys up and about and play well and train well. And he just enjoyed watching, I suppose. Yeah. David, to go to Sydney at that time, um, was interesting, would be interesting to hear how you compared the cultures of the two clubs. Uh, Geelong weren't, you know, at their finest at that time, in the middle of the roadside. You go to yeah. Sydney, a lot of publicity. Was it Edelston? That was the Edelston time, right? Yeah, that's right. And and even the shape of the ground when you played must have been different. The whole culture in Sydney is different to Geelong. How did you adjust to all that? Um, it was just a really exciting time for football uh, for us. Uh, everything was new. And I think when I went up there, I was about 20... 23, 24, and, um, yeah, it was just a, a nice new challenge and something to be a real part of because it was such a big thing at that time about being, you know, you'd pick up the paper and you'd see, you know, either Edmund or Nagel recruited and we had Morris Rioli up there. It was talk about Simon Madden coming. So there was always something as encouragement and they'd always... It, would, it was on the boil at that time with all these good players coming in. So it was a real exciting time to be a part of. There's a few of the Swans blokes here, the originals and the uh, probably the middle of the road players, a couple of those probably had their nose out of joint because they felt they might have been pushed out. We're up until that stage. They were always competitive but could never get it to the next level. So they probably felt a little bit threatened, some of those guys. But that's competition. I suppose you can't improve without it. And what about playing on the SCG, the shape of the ground compared to Community Park? Did you notice any difference or is it just another football ground? Oh, no, definitely wider, a heck of a lot wider. It was a great ground to play on. Um, uh, we had, you know, one of the best full forwards going around at that time. So for us, it was like basically one handball, one kick. And then you end up watching a bloke stand on someone's head down the goal square 10 times a game. It was, you know, that was so good to be a part of that, to watch that all happen. So it didn't matter where you've got the ball from on that ground, any, anywhere this side of centre, you could just, if you're under pressure, and a lot of it back then wasn't pinpoint passing, it was just put it in the air and let Kappa do, it, do the rest. Arriving there just four years into Sydney, well, the Sydney Swans, being the Sydney Swans, uh, and obviously still navigating your way through the whole release from Melbourne, it, you must, it must have been so emotionally charged for still so many old South Melbourne supporters that wanted to embrace the Swans, but obviously having moved away from their home base. Yeah, we, well, you obviously still see that with a lot of people when you go to the footy. They're, they're still red and white, and their red and white is, even though it's Sydney, it's still entrenched down here in Melbourne. And uh, all of those people that hung on and uh, were rewarded with, you know, a good football club from then on in. They had a few down times uh, after Edelson had dropped off and Bacanara had a couple of years there and Barassi was there. But overall, that that is a very, very strong club with a great culture and being able to, to always attract, you know, between Ruse and Longmire, great coaches and uh, really they just turn up and they're there to play every week. It just seems to be like a little bit like the old North Melbourne days. They always find a way to get get into it and into a game and win. David, as, as a past player who, who played in the 80s and 90s, um, your connections with the two clubs now, is there, a, is there still some sort of uh, 
communication or involvement as a past player in the current age or do you think, um, oh, yes, I used to play for those clubs but I don't really have anything to do with them now? No, I, I must admit uh, when I got involved with just local level, I didn't get back to Geelong a lot. I certainly didn't get up to Sydney all that often but now uh, Geelong has a fantastic past player network. They've got great rooms. They work very hard at networking their older you know, they're older players. Uh, Sydney is not so much that way. It's all driven uh, with, within different groups of players. But of my era, I still catch up with a lot of guys and um, there's, there's a, a, a bit more of a groundswell now of trying to get that happening again, which is a good thing. David, um, one of my bugbears of the modern game is the number of AFL players who cannot kick on their non-preferred foot. Yeah. My recollection of you playing is that you were, I think, a right footer naturally, but I would have thought perhaps even two-thirds of your kicks were on your left foot. Is that something you had to work on? Or is that something you're conscious of with the modern player as well, that they can't turn both ways? Yeah, there's, only, there's not a real lot of, uh, what you'd say, really good uh, two-sided players going around. You know, even Steve Motlop, as good as he is, the chances of kicking those boomerang goals, uh, you know, from 30, 40 metres out, he might do it once a season or twice a season. But, yeah, it, that sort of disappoints me a bit. I, I really honed in on my left foot because I broke my right leg over in Adelaide um, twice in the one season. So both times I came back, I was always having to kick at training on my left foot. I just um, improved my skills through injury, really. But But... Growing up, it was always something I used to like to do at primary school. We'd have competitions of, you know, like who can kick on their opposite foot 20 metres, 15 metres, whatever it was. You know, I always liked to compete to try and do that. And when you got the, the knack of being able to get your balance right, and it just became second nature. And, yeah, it was it was a nice thing to be able to do to go both ways as well. Um, I, I just see guys now and they just come out of the centre. If you put pressure on their right side... They'll just head straight out to the flank. You know, there was a guy from Richmond the other week. I forget his name. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. Like, he's just come out of the centre. He had to kick out to the flank because he had no left foot. It's the only way he could go. Strange. We're talking a 123-game player at the elite level, 28 with Geelong, 95 with Sydney. It's David Bolton. And, David, representative honours came your way, uh, including playing for Australia in the International Rules Series. A bit of uh, biff and bash against the Irish. That must have been a bit of fun. Yeah, that was a little bit different. Um, I still think the rule, the rules and the ball were all stacked in their, uh, their favour. So um, we lost that series I played in, but it was a yeah, heck of a lot of fun. And it was probably a, heck of, you know, a lot more relaxed uh, then than what it is now, even though every time you play, you play to win. But the between playing and uh, the training, there was a fair bit of fun to be had as well. David, a particular strength of your game was your speed, your running ability um, to cover the ground really super quickly and get away from the, those congested packs and into, into open space. Uh, did you do any sort of professional foot running or was that just a natural speed that you wound up using to your advantage? No, it's just I didn't do any professional foot running. I... I often thought I would have liked to have tried, but um, I don't know. I think you might run a little bit uh, faster when you've got someone on your backside ch chasing you. Uh, 
So it, and it was always nice to know if you had a bit, a little bit more speed than anyone else, you could almost look at them and you'd know where they'd be at. And if you had half a yard, well, then you just, use, like you said, use it to an advantage to get away. Um, where who were some off. of the um, who were some of the great matchups you had in uh, your career playing, especially on the wing? I played on uh, Robert Dibier Domenico quite a few times. Um, you'd have different, um, uh, what can you say, tactics to play on different players. So mine for Robert was to engage him in talk, get him down to a level where I didn't make him that upset. Uh, he he was a I still get on really well with him now. So I used to just treat him like a friend out there. I I think he was going to be the other way, but it, I always treated the other way to try and use that as a a thing to get him off his game a bit and don't get him too fired up, and he won't you know won't be in the contest as much. And it seemed to work. But um, the hardest bloke I probably played on was a guy Philip Egan from Richmond. Um, he was such a such a strong mark, and I was on a, such a good overhead mark. And I think they must have worked that out at Waverley one day, and they just sort of flood to one side of the ground and just leave him and I out on a kick out. It didn't matter how hard I punched the ball; I couldn't hit it out of his hands. I I just couldn't get it out of his hands. He was such such a strong player, and he he's a, a really good good opponent. Probably not a top liner, but yeah, I always had trouble when I played on him. David, you played a few finals for the Swans. Uh, not many wins there, but they must have been special occasions and provided you with some special memories. Yeah, they, they were. There's a, a crowd of 87,000 when we played Melbourne up there. It was pretty, pretty strange to run out uh, with, I'd say, 85,000 or 83,000 of those uh, people on Melbourne's case. Even if they didn't barrack for Melbourne, they all wanted to give the Sydney side up a flogging which they did by 80-something points. So we'd always, almost played our best football uh, probably six weeks out both years. We'd reached our, our height and we'd received a few injuries uh, in those last six weeks, which took whether, whether the guys were out of the team or they were just carrying injuries. We weren't at our best going into both, but uh, that's just footy, I suppose. You've got to get the timing right. It's not just the best side that... Uh, you have on paper that always wins. You just got to be peaked at the right time. David, during those halcyon days of the Swans, when you were up there and and all of the glitz and glamour and big names, and there was all the talk about money being thrown around like confetti in the Swans in Sydney mm. in those days. But you must look at today's player earnings and just scratch your head and just wonder how can that happen that you can pursue essentially something that you love and it is the entertainment industry, but some of the boys are actually doing pretty nicely out of the game, aren't they? Yeah, they, they are. But I suppose it all becomes relative to what sort of pool is involved within that business or organisation to run it. Um, I'm sure a lot of the management of the AFL are doing quite nicely as well. It wouldn't be just the players that are doing okay out of the game, which is fine because it, they, they need those sort of people involved to make decent decisions and that. that so I... Everyone says, oh, that's too much money. It's too much money. But they're, they're not in the game for that long. It's probably, I think, the average when you average it out. I don't know. I think it's something like four years overall outside of the, the real top line. So it's not a lot of money for a lot of guys over a long period of their, their lives. 
David, tell us about your uh, football uh, exploits after the Swans, because you uh, you coached and played, I think, um, in a variety of places after you finished your league career. Mm-hmm. I left Sydney and came down to a place called Strathmerton on the Murray, um, which was in the Murray League. I had sides like uh, Cobram, Namurka, Nathalia, Tokemall, um, Finlay, in those in that league, which was a, a fairly strong league, so I had two years there. The first year we didn't make the finals. The second year we made it to the prelim and got knocked out. Um, and then I came back down to Geelong, where I played with South. I played yeah with South Bowen. Uh, first game was against Grovedale, and I remember that the gate guy that was there was um, Freddie Marshall was on the gate there, and I'd rocked up and. I hadn't seen him in years. Like he, he was there when I left. He was still on the gate when I came back. But <laughs> he said, "How was I going?" I said, "Yeah, good." And I, I told him I was playing today. He said, "Oh, I didn't know you were back playing." And I said, "Yeah, well, I'm playing for South Barnes. So I didn't get a call from Grovedale when I was coming back. No one touched base or anything. And I, I don't know whether they knew I was even coming back to town. But yeah, I ended up playing for South for a couple of years. Um, then I ended up at Motawari. Um, my father-in-law had been heavily involved out there for years and then I uh, retired from there, went down to Anglesey and then came into uh, Motawari again to coach and then off to St Joey's to play with uh, my sons in there and I only had the chance to play for with one of them. Uh, I played with my son Matthew and at Joey's there for a few games in the seniors there. So there's a few clubs. I think I've covered them all anyway, locally. Did you keep all the jumpers from every club? Are you got a sample of every jumper? And, I think I've got, I've got a sample. And then also answer me this, if you yep. can, please. Um, just to go back again to your playing yep. day, your AFL playing days. Mm. I remember you as a pretty consistent player, but you must have had some special matches. I'm, I haven't done any research. Did you ever get any Brownlow votes and did you have special games where you walked off and thought, yeah, this is one of my best days. So yeah, I, yeah there's, there's always some good days that you remember, but there's a lot of games. You just you just don't remember them. I don't know why, but when you're out there playing, you, you say to yourself, oh, you know, you're looking around, you're right into the game, but they just fade from your memory. I don't know, getting to the, my age today, I suppose, it all, it all just blends together. But... Um, I played a couple of State of Origin games, which were really good. I, uh, they're good memories, and you play against the guys that you play with on the weekend, and it's it's funny when you you're out there. It doesn't matter who it is, you, you're still competing, and if you get the chance to uh, do a number on them, you, you'd like to, whether you're playing or you get the chance to run through them or anything like that. And on the weekend, you you're back being their best mate and supporting them again. It's those sort of days were a little bit funny, but they were they were great days. And the jumpers, jumpers, yeah, I've got a fair few of those, but I don't fit into uh, too many. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got a good collection of jumpers. I I I uh, I love my time at every footy club. I have a lot of friends from different clubs, which is good, a uh, good thing. Well, David, we thank you so much for your time. Uh, as part of the Cats Whiskers podcast for this week, we really appreciate uh, you as a footballer, um, as someone that's given us your time here, as I say. You played 123 games at the highest level. 
It's 123 more than the three of us collectively. So we really admire and appreciate that and congratulate you on everything that you've achieved. I know, I know your kids personally. I know that they were pretty outstanding sports people too. I know you've probably got a house full of grandkids right at the moment that you need to clear because they've all come around for your 61st birthday and we hope that you've had a cracking day. Thanks, Wes. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the Cat's Whiskers You're with Wes Cusworth, Anthony Petkovic and Mark Browning. And Mark Browning, I need to ask you just what is the AFL doing? What is wrong with Tuesday night and Wednesday night football? Wes, why can't we have Tuesday night and Wednesday night football on the TV? Because it's every other night of the week. Why, why, I don't need a break. I don't know if you do. Um, yeah, look, uh, the, the Foxtel Footy League, I mean, the AFL is... Um, their fixturing is a very interesting stage. Um, we've got Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday evening, and then Monday night. Uh, I know we're not going to get Saturday afternoons and get the footy record and read the, all the other scores, write down all the other scores at half time. I know those days are gone, but it's getting pretty ridiculous, especially in July. Um, supporters are freezing. It was bitterly cold at the MCG on. Saturday afternoon. It was lovely at two o'clock. Sun was shining, slippery. Uh, I just think the AFL needs to have a good look at how they set it up over the season. April, it's fine, but when you get into the depths of winter, it's not just about watching it on TV or on pay TV. You've got to look after the people that go to the game. And I know there are members that Geelong have spoken to two in the last week who think that they might not get a membership next year. They don't, they're, they're my age, admittedly, so they're in their 60s, but they're considering not getting a membership because there's too many night games and it's too cold, especially at this time of year. Well, look, uh, I'm with you all the way on that, Mark. We, my wife and I have that discussion every year about memberships. Uh, we look at the fixtures. We shake our head in horror sometimes because we... you. The people at home watching on the television and the people in the corporate lounges don't understand how damn cold it is in the middle of winter to sit there and watch football. It is unbelievably cold. Um, Whereas you've sat alongside me in the middle of depths of winter and you know how cold it is at the games. The the regular fan is not being catered for with this uh, plethora of night football, particularly in the middle of winter. Um, it is not sustainable in terms of memberships. At some stage, this is going to bite into people because they're going to say, why buy a membership when I can just get Foxtel? It's as simple as that. The death of Saturday afternoon football, that's an inside job. The perpetrators are at the AFL. They're involved in fixturing. If you put the good games on, on a Saturday afternoon, people will flock to them. The AFL know that. That's why they put the rubbish on then, if at all. Um, And we're trying to create a situation where you can't have a Thursday night marquee game, a Friday night marquee game, and a Saturday night marquee time slot. There's not that many marquee games, not that many top-notch games. And you'll create, all you'll do in the end is create more and more rubbish. And then the television networks will say, we're not paying for that rubbish. And then you're back to where you started. Maybe uh, the golden goose may well be on its way out. 
What about the coaching merry-go-round that is certainly not on its way out? It's about to amp up. Oh, it certainly is. This is going to be really fascinating watching. This time last week, it appeared that Hawthorne, in terms of Clarkson, Kennett and Mitchell, were all on the same page. It doesn't appear that way now. I think there's an orchestrated campaign from Hawthorne to get rid of Alistair Clarkson sooner rather than later. I don't think anyone at Hawthorne really want him to complete his contract next year. I think they would like him to go to another club. Um, Mitchell certainly doesn't want the... The, to entertain the situation of Clarkson coaching the side while he learns in some sort of an apprenticeship role. Um, and then there's the issue of, of which club wants to invest in him, if he's invested in them. Is it Collingwood? Is it Carlton? Is it someone else? Will he take time off? He's not going to take time off from football unless he's paid his $1.2 million. Um, and Hawthorne don't want to pay for two coaches next year. Um, Collingwood are in a similar situation. They've got a lot of people putting their hands up, but uh, we don't seem to have a plan there yet. And there are a number of coaches at the AFL looking over their shoulders. Uh, One of them, of course, is is David Teague, who is in the Carlton role, but uh, knows full well that if Clarkson was available, uh, the Blues would probably snap him up in a heartbeat. Anthony, in your opinion, is there any pressure or question marks over Damien Hardwick and Adam Simpson, particularly the West Coast Eagles, I think, are really underperforming and losing at home to the bottom side. Is there any question marks there? Well, both are contracted. So you've got a situation where you've got to find a fair bit of money to move them on. I'd be surprised if they weren't backed in. They might both have to commit to some generational change. And that's, that's the key issue. Doing the same thing with the same players is not going to work for either of them. They need to have a plan going forward. And some of that will mean Richmond, for example, are an interesting case. They've got two first-round picks and two second-round picks in the bag for this year's draft. Richmond are in a good position to rebuild quickly. Um, West Coast, not so much because they've invested in talent um, outside of the draft in recent times. They haven't got the big prize there to go to. But Richmond certainly have got um, a good hand at the draft this year. Now... We know that we've spoken in the past about the fact that the media likes to choose a team to beat up on each week. Who's the team of the week this week, Anthony? Oh, the media have gone hell for leather. Um, Pitchforks and uh, torches at uh, Richmond, of course, uh, because of that this unexplained four-game loss that they've had in a row. Uh, remembering that uh, a month ago they they led West Coast in Perth by 22 points with 10 minutes to go. And since then, their their year has flatlined. But look, a lot of it has to do with availability of your gun players and how banged up some of your gun players are. At the moment, Richmond are a bit light on for talent. They've got a lot of good players out. I compare it to the situation a month ago with St Kilda. St Kilda were really struggling because several of their really good players were either injured or out of the team. Suddenly you get those players over their injuries, you get your good players back into the team, things turn around really, really quickly. I expect Richmond to bite back. I expect Richmond to to make the finals this year. I expect Richmond to be, if they can get their good players back, uh, and get Dusty Martin and Trent Cotchin, whatever whatever ailments they're carrying into games, I think that Richmond can come back. And uh, the media next week will move on to someone else, um, whoever that might be. But uh, there's always someone for the media to kick around. 
Anthony, in a nice even season then, should there be the nine games where you have to pick your winner? And at the bottom, do you also have to name the team that is going to be the uh, punching bag of the media the next week? That would be a, a good thing because the, the media, I think they, they have their little conference, they have little Zoom conferences, I think, and they, they work out who we're going to go after this week. And um, it'll be interesting to see next week, uh, depending on who wins, who loses, uh, what happens. Brisbane are playing uh, Richmond. Will Brisbane be in the pump this time next week? Um, what's going to happen at West Coast? What's going to happen with... Uh, what if the Bulldogs drop another game? It can just change on a, on a weekly basis. Now, lads, as I mentioned at the top of the program, we are recording before the Fremantle-Geelong game on the Thursday night. So we're going to obviously be trying to forecast what is going to happen. And then, of course, our Sport FM listeners are going to be hearing this on the weekend and perhaps laughing at us for our expectations of the contest. What about the Cats? Is it going to be a, a walk in the park for them? Well, certainly not going to be that, Wes. Um, clearly, it's a huge game for both clubs because I think if Geelong can win in Perth, I think that sets them up to a, they must finish top four. And for Fremantle, to get a big scalp like Geelong as they're pushing for a place in the eight, I think that also would be a huge feather in their cap. I'm interested to see too when on Thursday night what the conditions are like because on the Monday night game, it was very wet in Perth. There's been more weather about and Geelong seem to enjoy playing in a bit of wet weather and cold weather. So, yeah, that could be a factor. So I'm going to presume some wet weather and I'm going to tip Geelong. Yeah, I think the weather is an interesting point. Geelong are and have been for a long period of time, probably because of their bigger bodies, and experience, Geelong rarely lose in wet and heavy conditions. Uh, they've played some of their best football in recent years in wet and heavy conditions. And last year against Fremantle, if you remember, it rained from start to finish and Geelong held them to two goals. Um, I expect Geelong to win, but I think Fremantle are, are, are a definite chance. They're a, a, a growing side. Um, some of their ageing players are having a, a bit of a renaissance. Uh, Fife is excellent. David Mundy is, is at his absolute peak. Um, Rory Lobb is finally starting to show some of the potential that he is capable of. And uh, Sarong and uh, Sarah are very, very good players as well. So I think that uh, Fremantle are a definite chance. But uh, again, Geelong are getting close to the tipping point as well with availability of players. We're starting to lose um, some of the top line, top shelf players. And it'll be interesting to see how Geelong manage um, some of their ageing stars over the course of the rest of the year. Remember, no club in the history of the competition has won a premiership with more than six 30-plus-year-old players. Final topic of conversation, lads, and I need to go back to you, Anthony Petka, because I think it was about a month ago that you suggested to us that the eight was set. Yes, the clubs obviously have reacted to that comment. They're trying to trying to cast doubt on my talents as a tipster. I'll go back and say West Coast will pick up and will make the eight. Richmond will pick up and make the eight. And all will be well. But uh, yes, the, um, 
the, the situation isn't turning out as expected. Um, some clubs are refusing to take the chances that they are offered. GWS is a perfect example. And some clubs have come from nowhere. Fremantle have steadily built. And of course, St Kilda have done a great job over the last month or since the buy. So whilst the situation looks fluid, I expect the West Coast and Richmond, purely on the fact that they've got really good experienced players. They've been in these sort of holes before. They will know how to dig their way out. And around the corner, there's some troops in reserve who will come in and build that, both of those clubs back into the finals race. So, Anthony, you're saying the Ballarat Giants are going to miss out. Who uh, else in the eight? Or can you name your eight now? You, you, after round 23, your, your final well, eight. I, I think it'll, it'll be... Geelong, Brisbane, Melbourne and the Bulldogs will take up the top four and that uh, Port Adelaide, Richmond, West Coast and Sydney will make up the, the bottom four. Should make for a very interesting final series were that to be the case. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the Cats Whiskers, boys. Really appreciate that. Hope that you all of our listeners have enjoyed this week's program. Of course, available on a range of podcasting platforms and heard throughout Perth on Sport FM. I'm Wes Cusworth on behalf of Anthony Petkovic and Mark Browning saying farewell and join us again next week.